I saw the whole deaf and dumb school healed en masse. And I turned around and I saw their teachers crying because they'd lost their job now. Joy is actually a skill. Contentment is actually a skill. These things come out of maturity. What I would say to my younger self, there is a life available for more joy and more meaning and more adventure and more satisfaction, but it's a life that you cannot get independently. Guys, welcome back to the Ensigns Podcast. First thing you'll notice, Sam is not here today, but I have successfully roped into the studio one of the more interesting members of the current crew here in Colorado where we operate. One, Anthony Ashley. Anthony is a strategist. Yes, you all think you know what that means. (laughs) But the thing is, we don't. So we're going to dive into strategy, maybe besides logistics, the most kind of ancient of the high-level operational sciences from military to government, it will, if not blow your mind, at least provide some significant direction relative to how to think through maybe some of the problems of your 20s, 30s, and they're on. But Anthony is kind of, I'm going to skip his resume because he's sitting right in front of me, but has sort of worked across channels and across organizations, bringing this thing that is multi-tiered strategy and how to think about it to various Uh, institutions, companies, fascinating dude, as you will see shortly. Anthony, thanks for coming on the podcast this morning. Glad to be here. So, strategy. There's no other place besides etymology to start as any word that that is not the sum of its parts, I think is etymologically interesting. Mm -hmm. So you would hear strata and think we're talking about like layers and stuff. But we're not. It actually is directly coordinated to, in my understanding, basically, if you look it up, historically, it just meant the way of the general strategy. Before that, it kind of comes from the office of the general, which is where like the layer thing comes in. But we have, where, where to begin on the way of the general, defining this concept? Yeah, I think of the original word as just, yeah, um, army leader. <laughs> basically. I think where to begin is to acknowledge that people talk about strategy and they mean different things. And it means different things in different contexts. So uh, military strategy is where all strategy comes from. The word and and those conversations move their way into business, probably in the, I want to say 70s. Then from business into personal life and and other things. I think the place to begin is to realize that it's, it's hard to talk about. I think it's one of the most abused words out there. It's a buzzword. Everyone says they have strategies or they're operating strategically when most of the time they're just doing things. Saying that negatively sort of implies something about strategy. The way I think about strategy is that it is uh, a series of high-level decisions made in pursuit of a goal. When you're talking actually about an organization making choices. What are the attributes of strategy in terms of like a company and its goals? And because this will have takeaways for personal things as we'll see. Yeah, great question. 
I think most businesses operate mostly tactically and then sort of in retrospective look back at the default strategy and and call it one, but often lack the intentionality and discipline to have actually like developed a robust strategy in advance and then executed it. Strategy in business. So whenever I'm doing workshops and like training a team on developing their strategy, the visual I give them is just two dots on a whiteboard. It's extremely cheesy, but, but effective. One dot representing the here and one dot representing the there. The strategy is the, is the line that connects the two. So the here is your current context, where you're at now. It's the current uh, resources, abilities, um, personnel, et cetera, right? Um, the current positioning, uh, their current sort of assets. And the there is the goal. Um, where they want to be in the future and what the world should look like if they've succeeded at whatever they're doing. Having a robust knowledge of the here and the there um, is, is, is difficult because it takes time and it takes perspective and sort of uh, separating yourself from the whirlwind of tyranny of the urgent in whatever business context, right? This is the ancient art of settling upon and determining the outcome. Yeah. Which- Goal setting. This is not, in fact, an elementary skill. It really isn't. And this is something that sort of, you know, every year, for example, if you are a Ransom Tart podcast follower, you will get this exhortation to spend uh, some significant time at the outset of every year with God determining together what the goals for that year are what he has thematically and specifically for the year that takes journaling reading listening to the voice of god like this is a broad skill of man can you actually define what you want your outcome to be on this do you have i don't know a handful of tricks with teams that you're working with to help them move towards defined goals? Basically just asking lots of questions. Uh, the simple questions of why expose so much, uh, so many strategic flaws. I've often said, you know, like, like my job is to ask why, especially like, like when I'm operating as a strategist. And so many times, you know, just leaves kind of blank stares or awkward silences. So in, in sort of assessing the here, you ask lots of questions. So why are you investing your money in this way? Well, why is your team working on on this set of of uh, problems and and so on? Uh, why are you in these digital spaces? The absence of answers for those questions, or kind of like the absence of, of like really good answers, uh, opens up the opportunity to have the conversations of. So what are we trying to do here? Right. So in terms of like tricks for. Uh, helping teams create good goals. I think it's just applying a discipline process to developing the answer to the question of what should the world look like if we succeeded. Uh, and it's kind of a cliche at this point, but but SMART goals, uh, the framework of, of SMART is a really useful practice. It's funny, if, if you Google the acronym SMART, like like the R, there are like endless options for what that means, but it still is is, is useful uh, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. Your goal should be specific, right? It, it, it should be a concrete thing. So for a business, rather than saying, sell more stuff to everyone in the world, it should be sell more of these widgets to this audience. And then measurable, 
it should have a series of signals that you can measure to know whether or not you're you're succeeding. It should be achievable. That's pretty self-explanatory. Um, oh, except <laughs> let me just throw in the Seth Godin in here of no part of an achievable goal yeah. can be a miracle occurred, <laughs> and yeah. so you know, uh, increasing your squat by two hundred pounds. That's achievable, but in most cases, it's then a miracle occurred that got you there, or your book became a bestseller. That's usually the miracle occurred. Yeah, There are sort of local things in front of us, and it's helpful because that's where our responsibility actually lies. So just a word on this point <laughs> is, whatever in most cases we think achievable is, there are, when it comes to the actual work and the application of effort, there's this downscaling to like, okay, on the squat example, we all know that, sure, depending on your regime, either two or three times you're in and you're doing progressive overload with a concentrated strategy relative to the development of muscle, rather either recruitment of additional muscle tissue or the forcing your body to build more muscle cells. There are two different ways of going yeah. about that. But achievable is very local <laughs> in terms of sort of the understood this is the part we didn't talk about a minute ago, which was talked about defining the there. Yeah. Defining the here is sort of one of the important parts to finding whether or not the goal is achievable. But Absolutely. Even in this conversation, we're kind of skipping over it. And it often is skipped over because people assume they understand their, themselves or their own position. But that part of it, understanding the here, is as difficult and takes uh, at least as much time, if not more, actually. Yeah, so realistic and then time bound, right? Achievable within a certain time frame. And there's a time by which you can look back on those measurable signals and know I've succeeded, I've failed. From the design perspective, I love smart goals. I also love, I've sort of found that the more ways you run it, the there, the better off you will be. Yeah. You know, in the design world, we have to do this sometimes a dozen ways with someone to help understand what are you actually, what are you actually trying to, what's the change you will make in the world? What, as you said, what will the world look like if you succeed? And it's not like, oh, well, the world will look like a world, you know, now populated with blue water climbing ropes. And you go like, no, no, no. How many of what kind of person in what kind of context will be using a blue water rope if this particular campaign works like yeah and we'll say things like say it in one sentence say it in three words say it in one word draw me a picture now draw me a different picture like pen on paper of a scene that's what the world looks like absolutely if this works and just running at it from multiple ways in many in most regards the more clarity we have about what we are hoping to move towards the easier it will be to make decisions, strategic decisions, and to determine a strategy. Yeah, for sure. And um, I have at least three, maybe four different templates I use to like guide teams toward crystallizing those future outcomes. And actually, smart goals, um, I think, kind of come after the more kind of open-ended visionary statements, right? So in the training context, the the vision might be, I've got a well-balanced body physically, like in the shape I need to be in to go do Brazilian jiu-jitsu training. Like more visionary, less specific, actually. Not a smart goal, but more of a broader objective. And once I have that bigger vision of, of the world, the world, once I succeeded, then I can actually break it down into smart goals that comprise that. We recently did a podcast with 
Dr. Randy James that followers of this podcast will have heard. And it's really interesting to see right at the outset, this is where he starts. And he starts with, I work for you. There's no such thing as being healthy. There's no such thing as being happy. Yeah. And just goes, let me just push to the side all these placeholders. They're the illusion of understanding. They're not understanding. And tell me, what do you want? When you are 75, what would you like your life to look like? And then we can talk about how you live in order to make that a reality. And goes, you know, if you want to be 75 and still able to hike with your family and this is going to make a massive decision and he was pretty frank on everybody is either sliding into the nursing home at 50 Mm -hmm. which is the default track in the context where we live or making pretty aggressive regular decisions to arrive at a different place as sages and it takes a kind of clear defining of no 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 you don't want to be healthy at 70. Nobody's healthy at 70. Like your body is not functioning optimally as a 20-year-old's body functions as a 70-year-old. So that's off the table. What would you like your body to do mm. when you're 70 years old? You can make decisions around that. It's it's just such a good example of the ambiguity of, you know, I want to be, I'm going to switch across fields here. I want to be financially stable and go, well, That's not an option in an unstable world. So (laughs) what exactly would you like to do? Oh, you know, you'd like to be, you know, debt free at whatever age. And you would like to have X amount of cash available for emergencies. And you'd like to be able to do this many trips. You'd like to be able to visit Europe with grown kids. You'd like to be able to contribute to college, like the classic things that are out there. Yeah. But there are a dozen ways to sort of run a vision of a financial end goal that is not, man, I just want to like be whatever. In this example, nobody feels good about their state financially. You can feel good about being in line with your strategy. but <laughs> And we talked about the body and you, we can just sort of pivot across here and go, this is all better on goals though. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I love that vision of like when you're old, what do you want it to be like? And uh, I've been thinking about this a lot recently for myself. That's really like approaching your life strategy from the grand strategic level, right? Like what's the grand strategy of your life? And it's a difficult question. I recently started making a list of like when I'm old or when I've died, what, what what are things I want to be true about me that people could say about me in my life and are true? I want to be a, an old guy who isn't, that that cute um, sort of laughable character off to the side um, who's more of a joke. I want to be dangerous until I die. And I want to be useful until I die. I want to be someone who is worthy of respect, who like everyone knows is integrous. I want to have this profile of virtues that uh, are true about me and so on, right? Uh, I want to be generative until I die. So I... I don't stagnate or give in to despair at an old age, but I'm actually like like a source of wisdom to the community and so on. And this list is kind of the ultimate there for my mortal life, right? And then backtracking from there to the here and seeing these virtues that I I want to be said about me, like he had these virtues at my funeral. Um, Do I have them now? 
well, no, I'm weak in these areas or whatever else. So backtracking to the here and then like having a very brutally honest like assessment of myself and look at your day yesterday. Was that day lived in such a way that there's any reason to think you'll ever get to that place you want to be when you die? I love it. So we would be remiss, I think, if that in illustration of the concepts in this conversation, we didn't make some regular reference to the Battle of Thermopylae, (laughs) which is what we're going to begin to do now. But let's say you're Sparta, you're the leader of the Peloponnesian League most of the time, and and go, we, we have to backtrack from this fabled battle of poor odds against better odds and name. This is one of the most strategic defeats ever, maybe in the history of warfare. And it f- and putting that army, wasn't 300, it was probably more like 5,000 men, at Thermopylae in the time that they did fit in with the overall Greek military strategy specifically the Spartan military strategy. But to backtrack, we love the Greeks because we view ourselves as the heirs of the Greeks. We always root for them. So we sort of just assume that they were going to make it and of everything going on at the time, they were the best. Not true. Brief aside, Persia beat Greece, not only at Thermopylae, but basically every single other time they mm. had an armed throwdown. So the goal of Sparta around the Aegean was... Uh, establish a hegemony in the area in order to preserve a particular uh, life form around this collection of Spartan princes that looked like preserving shipping on the Aegean, preventing the establishment of major roads over from Spain because then the armies can get to you as they eventually do monitor the trade routes that already exist between mainland Europe and sort of, you know, Babylon, ancient Iraq. You have key goals for the protection of a particular nation. And then you go, and we know that Persia has more people, uh, more money, and for the reasons they have a better army always. And what, in view of those things, can we do to understand all of the world as it were. So we need to pick a way that we are going to engage. You can't beat Persia and you don't if you are Greece. You have to go, our goal is in many ways a basic goal of survival, but it breaks into a lot of very concrete pieces in this tiny, tiny part of the Mediterranean world. And then you go, and in view of our limitations, what is the flavor of our engagement with one of the like most massive, competent martial states at the time in the form of, you know, Artaxerxes and the armies under him. And one more comment before we move on, which will be relevant background when we get to, when we return to this. For various pop culture reasons, people have sort of valorized this company of 10,000 men under Artaxerxes, the immortals. Uh, what's really interesting from sort of the economic perspective They were the immortals because it was always, I'm pretty sure, there's going to be some historian out there who's fact-checking me, (laughs) but let me go. To the best of my reading and understanding, this is accurate, that they always had 10,000 men, and if anybody even got sick, they had a trained replacement. Mm. So even over the course of a multi-day battle, 
the size of this force would never diminish, which shows massive economic resources, a huge supporting structure, and a strategy that was based on the reality of the Persian kingdom, which happened to be huge and wealthy because it controlled the major trade routes and all of the major cities of the Near Eastern world, and had a lot of people ready to be conscripted into the army and a culture that valued military service, and they had a lot of horses, and just go. So they had this thing, which was to field this kind of juggernaut, and their juggernaut was you know, to control the value centers of the world. They already had the roads, but they had these pesky empires on the corner of them, always sort of encroaching and stealing resources and stealing access to markets. And you go, contrasting abilities, contrasting strategies, Mm -hmm. which we'll come back to, and a very strategic defeat, Battle of Thermopylae. Returning, so we've got goals. And we have, let's assume that we skipped it, Maybe we'll come back to it later. That we've done like some real assessment, as you're just saying, of do I have any of the virtues that I want at 80? Is it at this moment that like strategy comes? This is the moment that I think strategy comes in. Yeah. Yeah. So now, you know, going back to that visual, the two dots on the map or whatever, the here and the there, now comes the time where you make decisions kind of for and against things toward that goal. The reason that you can't do without the here is if you, you know, you have a line connecting with the there, but it doesn't connect back to where you are now. Uh, the the circuit doesn't close, right? And then if, and, and vice versa. If so now, yeah, you have a, you have the here, but you don't have a strong sense of the there. Well, then you have a line that again doesn't close the circuit. So now is where you face kind of the the hard existential challenge of realizing that there are infinite options. Um, there are constraints, but in many ways, there are sort of uh, many, many choices, even good ones, that you can make to pursue getting from here to there. And so saying no to all the other things, the kind of like like sort of the opportunity cost view of of when you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to infinite things in many ways, right? Saying no to all the other things and saying yes to this, this sort of um, high level, at least, view of how to get there. That's That's where strategy begins. This is the moment where sort of the conceptual flexing begins. For me, strategy is something that becomes visible in working through a bunch of examples. And strategies are clearly defined, but even the best strategy has this level of determined but indeterminacy in relation with what's happening underground. This is what maybe wakes you up in the night going, what is strategy? Yeah. What, me, what makes me look at real campaigns that are underway and goes like, what is the strategy? But Mm. one way that I think about it is sort of in view of who we are, in view of what where we're going, this is where almost some of the personality of individual people and individual companies comes in. This is where the flavor comes in of what is the way that we would do this? Yes, in view of all these hard realities, also in view of all of the soft overlying realities relative to personality, relative to style, voice, these things that you have to determine but aren't as concrete as we have three employees with these skills. Looking at a different military example, Napoleon's famous Russia campaign, 
Russia the most brilliant strategy to date, <laughs> to that time maybe, to fight Napoleon, just went, what is Napoleon a freaking genius at? Once the battle starts, he's a genius at identifying features of the landscape and the state of the men and the availability of resources and the skill and the innumerable things that real battlefield generals are aware with. And then he would just kind of start to decimate the army in front of him. This rush campaign, his opponent knew that, also knew that Napoleon was going to try to force these engagements. And so they just teased him with one for thousands of miles, burning the landscape as they went. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was almost fight, pull back, burn everything. Almost fight, pull back, burn everything. And I kind of think that Napoleon thought eventually they're going to have to turn and do something. A sort of underestimating the geographical reality of how huge Russia is and go, it, no, <laughs> they, they know they can do this forever. They don't really care about their cities in the way that you care about your cities. And so they're going to keep pulling out. And if you look at, there's a very famous graph on this that on a two-dimensional artistic plane represents maybe seven dimensions because it's temperature, size of the army, location, date. And it just shows this black line. If you can picture you know, a map with this black stripe getting narrower and narrower and narrower until it's just tiny and then turning around and getting tinier and tinier on its way back mm. and go, if you are Russia's famous army, you understand the goal is survival. But the flavor is a very complex retreat because if you had just withdrawn your army, that allows you know the advancing army to sort of do this concerted, okay, we need to keep our supply chains in intact. We need to move slowly. What we are now is an occupying force and going, wow, the strategic retreat of not allowing them to turn into an occupying force, mm -hmm. keeping them ahead of their supply chains while burning everything as you went so they couldn't resupply from the surrounding landscape. This is pretty amazing. Yeah, the Celtic Holocaust, where the, you know, the Romans invaded the, the Celtic lands and took them over, they employed the same strategy of, of retreat and burn. Um, and there's some you know, speculation, if not just knowledge, that like, one of the reasons the Romans were able to succeed is uh, the Celts um, couldn't, didn't fully commit to burning and running as, as the Russians did. So yeah, the, the strategy of we can't win, therefore retreat, but retreat strategically is a yeah is a well documented one. <laughs> oh man and you know to show that there are different flavors that is actually the strategy to a large extent of sparta and mm. what they would do they understood hoplite engagement so the, the classic phalanx locked shields spear and you know advancing as one unit well they knew this doesn't work well against an army that's composed of archers and cavalry those two things are great at getting behind hoplite soldiers. And if you have this massive brick, you have an unmissable target that the archers can just keep retreating and shooting at. And so they were like, well, we know we this is the way we engage. But to make it work, we know we have to have a force multiplying context, famously why they were on that kind of beach that was only about, I don't think, 50 feet wide at uh -huh. the time of the battle. 
That's not enough. They also knew that we have to keep breaking and running and then turning around and engaging smaller forces. And even if you are Persia and you understand what's happening, it's just amazing how much you still fall into. There aren't that many options with a retreating force. You kind of, unless you want them to kind of fall back, resupply, regroup, come back playing their drums louder, there is this back and forth that you do pursue them. Unfortunately, you start pursuing them as soon as you're in, you have the slightest dis- tactical disadvantage. Tactical meaning the ground is slightly more slippery mm-hmm. or you're, you're walking up a slight hill so that the force of the downward thrust is multiplied. Then they would turn around and attack again, immediately retreat again mm-hmm. and go. They weren't burning and running. They were running and turning, which is a variation in the kind of realm of strategies of the force you're fighting is bigger than you. What do you do? The other classic retreat strategy uh, is retreat as a stratagem of uh, deceit. And, you know, the classic last samurai, we retreat, we, we draw them into our area, and then we weren't actually re- retreating, we were trapping them. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, we could, we could go on about this stuff for a long time. One more example, because this was, you know, this was the classic, if you've read S.C. Gwynn's, Empire of the Summer Moon, and he just talks about the incredible war machines of the the Comanche and the Kiowa and the Sioux. You go, oh man, that that tactical retreating, they had perfected brilliantly. One of the things that you know, the famous Jack Hayes, a good strategist, in addition to being a good fighter, was that he was just finally one of the people who knew, don't follow them. Let's let's create other opportunities inside the conflict because we need to keep fighting. We all know the quality of this particular war because we are in a conflict. So we are going to run into these guys again. We don't have to chase them right now. We can do a bunch of other things to, in order to create outcomes where we win, where mm. we don't get lured into you know, a bunch of trees or a, some kind of valley or simply come over a ridge and there's 500 guys. Yeah. Pulling back from battle a little bit, though these examples are the coolest and where this comes from, there's a reason that this ends up being applicable to a person's life and a, and a company. And I wonder if you were just to begin digging for examples, either specific or at random, of different strategies towards a common goal that you have either helped implement or watched companies do. What's on the short list there? Different strategies toward a common goal. So let's say the common goal of making money. It's interesting how many different, like how, how diverse the palette of strategy colors is. That language refers to a book that if anyone's interested in pursuing this further is uh, your strategy needs a strategy. Only for the extreme, uh, for the nerdiest of business strategy nerds. Uh, it's pretty dry, but when it comes to businesses pursuing goals, there are many different strategies, right? There's not there's not like, like one approach to it. There's the classic every year look at our sort of fairly predictable industry, and uh, based off of this kind of like like slow but steady achievable growth goals, we plan everything out and turn the machine on and it runs. 
Um, there's like the very adaptive strategy, which is like this industry is not very predictable, but highly malleable. So we, our, our strategy is to kind of be structured in such a way that we can like rapidly um, respond to opportunities. And so we're, we're constantly reimagining our strategy. And the list kind of goes on and on. I guess my answer to your question is that an important starting place is to realize that there are many different approaches. And it, it, a lot of it depends on like what kind of business you want to run, how much you think you're able to shape uh, the world that you're in, and um, how short, how rapid the cycles are. Yeah, this reminds me again of your strategy should be a direct outcome and almost a near consequence of the goal. It's indistinguishable from the goal. And where that becomes very clear is, I'll return to business in a minute, but I'm thinking again about virtue. And I just go, if you want to be a virtuous person, and you understand that this comes out of a particular life with God, you could have this strategy, which is long game, a slow life, eradicating busyness from my life, creating contemplative rhythms, engaging the disciplines. But engaging the disciplines becomes an expression of a strategy, which I will just term kind of the as slow as possible long game. Or your kind of goal can be if it were different, like, I want to be virtuous, if you haven't defined that, what it just means to you is to sort of have as many good interpersonal abilities as possible. You know, just read a bunch of books, read a bunch of books, watch a bunch of videos on uh, conversation hacks, on inner peace hacks and all these. And like that one goes, the strategy comes immediately upon it, which is, oh, determine a way of sifting information, get as much of the best information as quickly as you can, and just begin operating out of that, they always make sense in terms of the quality and the nature and the eccentricity of the goal, returning to business and just outing some of personally how we think through these things. We see a particular group of men growing in a life with God in a particular way. We have a worldview that assumes that the restoration Jesus is achieving comes in a particular way. That informs how we think human life should be structured. That informs the content we want to make for that human life. We have these massive limiting factors in the form of the size of our team. And so, yes, a highly adaptable unit, except in our case, very, very, very few of those people are internal. Can we have teams that have as much oversight ability as possible, people who would ordinarily have role like director, producer, et cetera, et cetera, and put such a person in a position where they're rapidly able to execute on particular campaigns and initiatives with people that we don't have to see every day. That gives a tiny team the speed to produce something for a particular audience that fits what we think you guys, talking to you right now, need, like strategy in view of the kingdom of God or, or goals in view of a very robust, <laughs> Anthony a minute ago was pointing out, I think we edited it out, but we've been saying robust a lot. Now you guys know. Uh, <laughs> a robust understanding of what restoration looks like that is continually growing in the design of an adaptable strike force 
And how do you design a strike force to be as adaptable as possible in view of that understanding of restoration under Jesus? All right, pivot. Take me to the spiritual life. Yeah, this is where strategy gets really exciting. Um, you know, eventually with, with war and with business as huge and important as those things are, uh, there can also be this sort of futility when you really step back and take the even larger perspective. So things that are, are eternal. I think one of my like most recent revelations about strategy in general is how strategic church is. Like that the church is a strategy for the advancement of God's kingdom. There's the mind-blowing thing. Maybe some of you have already put this together, but when we say that strategy comes out of war and it comes out of your worldview, you understand that we live in a context of war, good and evil, in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of darkness, in contest over not just the destiny of the universe, because that's been determined in Jesus, but over needing to acknowledge, look at the lives of your friends. This is a drag down fight to the last atomic piece of creation will not be surrendered without concerted conflict. We live in a world at war. Also, it's very helpful to acknowledge and then think of Jesus as a general who has a strategy for winning this war for his creation. And so take me to the strategy of God. Take me to God as a strategist. And Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, just kind of uh, the caveat that this conversation is right and on the right track. There's always this kind of like temptation for people to uh, like apply their own interests or frameworks to God. And, and I'll say that there, there's this way in which he's above even the words that we're using, obviously. So this is really like a lens and not the ultimate reality. Like God is a strategist. God is a, is an, is a, an, you know, airborne soldier. Jesus is an airborne soldier and all these things like, yeah, cool metaphor, but also, um, God is like infinitely beyond that stuff. Just as, as a caveat. It's so good. Just as, as Milton puts it, in Paradise Lost, measuring things in heaven by things on earth. Yes, exactly. These are very human terms with which we are trying to understand what God's doing, I guess. Another thing, um, the war part of strategy is, like, like as you say, um, extremely important to like accept, to realize, and to not forget. <laughs> um, but there's also uh, a generative, creative aspect to the strategy of the church as, as like the way that God wants to infiltrate the, the entire universe and fill it with his glory and his image. Well, yeah, well, just to say that it's bigger than just fighting. God's only goal is not the overthrow of the evil one. Exactly. There's something like that, like infinitely beyond that. God's only goal is not the eradication of sin. Yes. You yeah. <laughs> uh, because really that's just a, a like a, Preamble. A, a, a more exciting way of saying like uh, behavior modification. Yeah. And just to go, wow, we could spend some awesome time. And at this point, just uh, I would abandon the language of goals because of like what it does to me and just go, yeah. whoa, the, des- the, the design, the desire, the will for the universe. Yes. That's what we're talking about here. And then ways that he's going about it. So yeah. again. Yeah. Like, like, like God's desire is to uh, creatively fill this entire universe that he's created that he's built with his image and we are his image 
I think this kind of perspective is so important for us to realize because church, if, if you don't have it, it becomes this extremely domestic, boring, repetitive, kind of punishing thing in which- Ritual. Yeah, yeah, ritual. And, and it is about behavior modification. It is about being good. It's about just- uh, just showing up and going through these motions because you're supposed to. If you don't have this perspective of church, then it becomes yes. pedantic, pedestrian. Absolutely. It just becomes it's something that happens in a vacuum. But it's essential to realize that church is, is more than these things. And so if you take up the challenge that that church is like it is strategic in the, in the military sense and strategic in the sense of the biggest picture of what the entire universe is about how intentional, how big, how exciting that is. You actually have energy to show up in church life in this community setting and not get bored. Let's talk about the Christian life and the church as it relates to the overthrow of evil. Well, how is this accomplished in the conventional terms of the flesh? Big egos fighting one another. This forms our understanding of this as conflict, as power, of having power as winning, as Nietzsche saying, joy is your power increasing. This permeates how we view justice and how we view the church and how we view everything else. And it's why culture wars happened, to pick an example at mm-hmm. random, but to go, Jesus adopted something totally different. We, we say to the victim, here's your power back. And then are surprised when that person who is a human being turns around and does harm with that power. Mm-hmm. Jesus does not adopt the way of coming in and taking power. He comes in taking on the nature of a, of a slave, being submitted all the way into death, a right ordering of relationship, which ends up cataclysmically turning this thing on its head, changes the, the power structure of the universe and equips people responding to him to respond to evil in a way that doesn't just push it over, like gets to the root eradicates the root, eventually eliminates this whole thing from God's universe. There's so many aspects to this because uh, I want to say, uh, I, I wish I had this verse memorized. It's somewhere maybe in Ephesians. Paul says something to the effect that God saw fit to reveal like the depths of his wisdom and his ultimate intention for the universe through the church to the principalities. The church is the the place um, where he reveals himself to the universe, to Everyone. This is what we're doing when we gather. (laughs) You know, I just riffing across the other great one is the church is described as the pillar holding up Christ to the world. Mm. Also the pillar on which reality sits. Yes. This is the thing revealing the destiny of the universe in the same way that marriage reveals the destiny of the universe to the world. This is also the thing that is currently kind of like making truth possible insofar as it's like the reinstitution of the government of God. And let me take one tiny step back and go, hopefully by now we know, and if you're in this orbit, you guys all know that this is not the name of a building or institution where a gathering of worship takes place. This is actually the organized guerrilla movement take adopting a life form in response to the work of Jesus and in response to, oh my gosh, there will be no increased 
to his government or his peace, as it says in Isaiah. This is the multiplication. Be, there, there will be no end. And to the increase of his government and peace, there yeah. will be no end. Important. Yeah. <laughs> Important. There will be infinite increase. <laughs> yes. This is the thing that is doing that. Therefore, I just love the counterexamples via negativa. It is not the strategy of Jesus to reveal himself by appearing, you know, one time sort of Star Wars hologram style over creation, though his ability to materialize out of air as fire or any other of things is is a given in God's universe, is not to come back right now, which Jesus has to address me praying for of going, there's a way this is happening. We're told to count the patience of God as salvation. Mm. So I just am aware of how, like the disciples, I'm still rooting for the war. <laughs> like, <laughs> Come back now and do that thing that you do when everything is ready, when the fig tree is ready and go, man, you've already told me where that's situated within your strategy. Obviously, the term starts to sound vulgar, but its usefulness is not exhausted here. Very helpful. Mm. Um, This is not your strategy. You have this strategy, which is through your Holy Spirit, giving yourself into a people who begin to metastasize to their neighbors, literally to their neighbors, one at a time in this multiplying effort, there are these famous cultural scholars, uh, Michael Hart, Antonio Negri, they wrote sort of an intellectual bestseller in the form of Empire that, like Michel Foucault, became just one of the things that you have to know to understand our world. It's a book about evil. And then they tried to write a book about what does resistance look like in view of these things? And they go, it would be so hard. It would have to be a spontaneous guerrilla movement organized by a a common will, organized by access to a common sort of central node, adapting around common principles in diverse environments. And I was reading this going, you just described the church. That's what you're talking about. Access to the heart of God through the Holy Spirit in Jesus. But with all of the weird cultural flair of neighborhood to neighborhood, able to adapt as necessary and adapt its structures around common principles when faced with everything from basic to extreme problems, basic problems of your neighbors won't listen to you and, and, you know, warfare and is creating conflict inside your home to we're not allowed to say the name of Jesus in this context to the principalities of this environment have so devastated this country that it's hard to operate as a Christian. Like, but the church is the plan. The church is what's happening. And as you just said a minute ago, as we were talking before, it is happening in a world where let's just observe that the kingdom of darkness also has a strategy. Satan has a strategy and obviously it is more evil and robust and nuanced than this. But if you listen to the World Podcast go, oh my gosh, culture to culture, Satan has a way of creating and reinforcing distrust of God, elevating the self, creating systems that feed the flesh and directing the world and the flesh and himself into this orbit that eventually, if it becomes 
like self-contained deepens the separation from mm-hmm. God in which actually all of creation once dwelled until the coming of Jesus. Yeah. I think one of his most under-recognized strategies is to keep you distracted. One of the primary barriers to having strategy in one's life is being busy. And businesses are too busy to like take time to develop, to develop their strategy. On the personal level, a barrier to like you living strategically and living strategically according to God's strategy for, for, for the universe is simply to be distracted. Yes. Another one. I think this blew my mind when Morgan Snyder mentioned it one time and said that God asked him, hey, you should ask me, what's the enemy's plan? What was the enemy's plan for your life? And to go, we talk a lot about the fact that Jesus has a plan for your life. Do you realize that the evil one in contest with God has a plan for your life? And usually it is to let the false self work. And so a basic tactic of of the evil one, reward your flesh, Mm. work as hard as he can to make your life work apart from God. This is that weird thing in the screw tape letters where screw tape, the demon has to tell the other demon wormwood. There are lots of times when you have to guard this person, like the apple of your eye, protect him from harm. You are deepening his harm by doing that, but just go, do you find the self-life not working or do you find that your strategies are failing? Maybe they are originating in a life apart from God and God is actually saving you. Like I could go into this huge sidetrack of how what I consider to be a brilliant financial strategy for the past couple of years, like just hasn't produced the fruit that I wanted it to. It, it keeps getting thwarted. And it wasn't until a couple months ago that I was like, Oh my gosh, this was all, this was again about building a life where it didn't matter if you showed up, God. There's Mm. nothing wrong with having sound financial goals, but my motive here was not into a life with and out of a life with God. And I, and like, it just became clear Jesus, you are thwarting me and the evil one by not letting this work. So good. That's the kindness of God right there. keeping his hand on you. It's incredible how helpful it is to realize that the enemy is strategic in his attacks against you and well, and against the whole kingdom of God. Because you can actually look back over history and identify patterns in his behavior, um, like in his warfare. Sun Tzu, the first probably documenter of strategy uh, as such, says that all war uh, warfare is based on deception, something something to that effect. This is certainly true with the enemy's warfare against us. So not only does he have highly tested uh, and proven strategies against humanity, but then he, he hides himself in the process. The mere ability to, when you're taking flack, not just kind of look around and, and, and think, like, why is stuff blowing up around me? But to realize that there is an enemy who is attacking you, to like pause and acknowledge that and engage in spiritual warfare is incredible. So much needless suffering of like happens in the Christian's life because they fail to realize the situation they're in. There yeah. have been many times where we're like, like you actually help me remember this because you will send a text to to me and you know other people saying, "Hey, we are under attack. Can you pray for us?" And I, I'm suddenly reminded of, "Wow, I, I've been in this dark place for the last several days," and, and I'm suddenly realizing I should have asked for help. 
because uh, I'm in the, in, in the thick of it. So like having the clarity to realize battle is, is, is around me, get help. It's hard because, as you said, one of the chief tactics in the last several centuries of the evil one has been like concealment. And you can look at the patterns of the kingdom of darkness does go in and out of this between sort of direct attack, doesn't tend to work, retreat into deception and concealment and go. I, I always want all our listeners. I'm like, I wish we could all just beam out of the tiny part of the world and just go, the enemy's strategy here is not his strategy in, in the rest of the world. It's extremely effective here. And it is a deployed centuries-long campaign on reality. And just go, if the enemy has put the ax to the root of reality, it's the most incredible strategic long game against the human heart, dear God, because it has it metastasizes it into everything, but it just starts with reality. I'm just going to leave that there because that would that would take us down a very long, <laughs> valuable sidetrack. And just return to again in framing our lives, understanding, I love the way you said it, what the universe is about, what this means, what God's will is for his universe. This is key in formulating anything we do. Like, and There is a thing you told me exists called meta strategy, which I haven't even Googled because I don't have a grasp on strategy that enough yet to look at what would, what would meta strategy be, but go, it's put really well in Paralandra where there's a conversation between the main character and functionally this group of angels. And they're talking about the return of Christ as the first things. And they're like, don't they talk about this on earth? And he goes, we call those the last things. And the, <laughs> yes. And they go, what? If a man begins to explore an island, but he trips getting off the boat, he first gets his feet under him, and then he begins his exploration. Mm. If you arrive somewhere and realize that you've lost something, you first collect your equipment, and then you undertake the grand adventure and go, okay, it's hard for us as men, I think, sometimes, and it's hard for us as humanity to anticipate life after this dispensation. And it comes up in every conversation of what's life going to be like for a warrior without war? What is life going to be like without difficulty and with eternity? And just go, you guys, uh, the human soul was designed before the fall, designed for a destiny for the universe that is coming when the first things happen, which is the wrapping up of this earth, the contest of the evil one, sin, and it is what we think of as the return of Christ ends the story and go, actually, that that is the beginning then into again what the universe is about and everything in us, strength, virtue, masculinity, really is designed for that story. It fits and works great in the stakes with which we're surrounded right now. And it works great in the stakes for which we were designed a good and dangerous and incredible universe with a mission underway that takes place beyond the overthrow of evil and the elimination of sin. Mm. That's so beautiful. 
yeah, strategies cascade. And whatever small uh, strategy you're working on for your life, like stewarding your finances and achieving some goal there, um, is, is a, a much, many levels lower uh, cascade. And, and, and if you go back to like up to the top, this is what we're talking about. God, he wanted a body. He built the universe and wanted to like, uh, fill it with his glory. And, and he decided to embody himself in the form of humanity. He made an image of himself, both a body as in like uh, a bride for a son and the body, uh, the head of which is his son. <laughs> and he wanted to fill the universe with, uh, with more, just love, a family, relationship, like the revelation of his, of, of his character, his endless creativity. And yes, like when the introduction is over, i.e. When, when, when Christ returns and the battle is over, the only thing I, I want to challenge on, on what you said a second ago is that I think there will be a difficulty. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, yes. Yes. There will be hard work to do and challenges to over, you know, overcome and like things to do, things to build, problems to solve. Not everything will be easy. Yes. And thank God, that, that sounds so freaking boring. Yeah. Stuff to build, uh, things to grow, uh, to cultivate, to shape into eternity without sin, without entropy, without brokenness, but with endless opportunity for creativity and agency. And the work that you're doing now, going back to the financial perspective, is simply shaping you to be a, a person who can do that with the rest of God's people into eternity. So the point of nailing your life's financial strategy is not so that you can retire and not have to hope that social security pays your bills. It's not so that you have more shit, you know, more objects uh, in, in your possession. The point is so that you're using this opportunity, this stage to cultivate the virtues, the character traits that a human being would need to partner with God into eternity, making things. 